kind of like when you talk to a friend or uh, someone you really trust and you reveal something that you're carrying around and, and just saying it out loud and have, having someone not, you know, turn away from you because of it can offer a lot of relief. I think writing can do that too. Welcome to Perennials, a podcast about growing up, getting wise, and trying to live a good life. I'm Victoria Russell. Today, I'm talking to Ona Gritz. Ona Gritz is the author of the poetry collection Geode and the memoir On the Whole, A Story of Mothering and Disability. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, The Guardian, Plowshares, and many other journals and anthologies. Ona's essay, It's Time, which appeared in The Rumpus, was named a notable essay in Best American Essays 2016. She and her husband, Dan Simpson, have a new joint poetry collection, Border Songs, A Conversation in Poems, and a new writing guide and anthology, More Challenges for the Delusional. Ona has also written two children's books, including Tangerines and Tea, My Grandparents and Me, which Nick Jr. Family Magazine named Best Alphabet Book of the Year. Ona's writing is really personal and honest and authentic, and you feel when you're reading her work like you're just sitting at the kitchen table with her, getting to know her. And I know I really felt that I could relate to so much of what she wrote about because though the details of our lives are different, there are these really universal human themes of not feeling good enough or not feeling whole, feeling somehow fundamentally flawed. And and it's really inspiring to, to learn from Ona about self-acceptance and coming to a greater sense of wholeness and a greater love of herself and being able to have stronger, deeper relationships with other people too, as she came to accept herself more. And through those relationships, she came to accept herself more. So there's so much beauty in this conversation, and I loved having it. I hope you enjoy it. Ona, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Victoria. I'm happy to be here. So I just um, recently reread Geode. Your this it was your first um, full length collection of poems, right? Yeah, that's right. I had a one chat book out before that. I loved spending time with your work and and just getting to know you as a poet. And the thing about mm. your poems is that when I read them, I just felt like I knew you. You know, <laughs> you definitely. Yeah. Your voice is so, it feels so honest and authentic and um, genuine and and you really reveal, you know, a lot about your life. Or I guess I'm kind of doing that thing where I'm collapsing the speaker of the poems and the author, but having also read your nonfiction essays, you know, um, it all feels very uh, personal. And I'm curious just what it's like to write and publish a book where you are, you know, being some, some poets are a little bit more mysterious, mysterious, or maybe right. even, maybe even sometimes hiding behind, you know, <laughs> um, yeah. metaphor and devices and you're pretty open about stuff. And, and in your essays, you're very open about a lot of things. And uh, yeah, I'm curious about what that experience is like of sharing so much about yourself and your life. I, I find that my work really comes out of a desire to understand my life and to 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 know what I, to know what I think about what I've been through um, and to be able to put words to um, 
sort of intangible emotions. I, I guess if I if I didn't if I didn't have a creative outlet, I'm not sure I would really understand myself very well. So mm. the pages were were I I do that exploring. And when did you start? using writing in that way was that something that you did as a child or did it come in high school with you know like love poems or (laughs) when did it start that's a really good question um I was I've, I've written since I was a child um but I think that probably writing so intimately came I um I went to NYU for grad school and and one of my teachers and one of the people that drew me to that program was Sharon Olds. Yeah. And she is such a, a model for really being revealing and self-exploratory. And, and I, I learned from her that to, to kind of use myself as a way to look at the human condition overall, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sharon Olds definitely comes to mind when I'm reading your poems and just Mm. thinking about that um that that level of honesty and and just kind of there's like this great there's like a it's interesting because you and and Sharon Olds as well write about some some heavy things and yet there's like this feeling of lightness in that it doesn't feel like you're ashamed of it. I think that's because the reader gets to to read the finished product. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I had I had an interesting experience. I used to write a column for an online journal, Literary Mama, that was about um, parenting an able-bodied child. Um, though I have a disability, and though my partner has a disability, and I I sat down. I, to write an essay about a really, really heartbreaking, painful experience I had around that where, um, you know, he was just a day or two old and I couldn't physically hold him in a way that I was able to feed him. And I remember when I was writing the essay, I kept getting up from my chair, (laughs) you know, get a glass of water, Mm. pace around the room. And I just kept thinking, okay, if it's hard to sit here, Assume it means you're on to something. Mm. And and what I discovered, and this is mostly a very good thing, though in, in some way there is a downside, is that when you put something on the page, or I imagine also on a canvas or um, however um, someone does create, but when I put something on the page, it helps me get it out of my body. Yep. So I'm not, I don't feel it in the same way. I don't, I I don't feel embarrassed or ashamed in a way that I might've felt if I'd never said it out loud or articulated it. It's kind of like when you talk to a friend or uh, someone you really trust and you reveal something that you're carrying around and and just saying it out loud and have, having someone not turn, you know, turn away from you because of it um, kind of, can offer a lot of relief. I think writing can do that too. Yeah, I definitely relate to that. Um, because 
I write poetry as well, although I do always find a reason not to submit anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess I'm still in the phase of um, being... Yeah, it's so funny because I I so admire people like you and Sharon Olds and writer, you know, like Elizabeth Gilbert and um, people who who can write about their life and their experiences with that honesty and um and and then I find myself being so afraid to uh to do it myself even with the podcast I like I've sat down to um all the episodes I've posted have been interviews and then there have been a couple of topics where I've thought maybe I should just record like a little mini episode and just kind of talk about this thing that um you know, I'm experiencing or I experienced that I, I feel like people could relate to and maybe just right. talking about it and telling a story um, could be helpful, you know. Um, and I have like a couple of files that I've just, I just was like, eh, I'm not going to post, I'm not going to publish those. <laughs> have you shared them with anyone? Um, I think I shared one of them with my boyfriend, Martin, and he was like, yeah, you should, you know, go ahead, post it. <laughs> and I just, <laughs> I just find, you know, I just always kind of get to that, to the brink and then kind of turn around. <laughs> so, so I really admire that a lot. Yeah. Thank you. Because it is so, I, I, it's so interesting how, you know, with poetry, we often talk about how the universal is in the particular. So for instance, your poems and your essays where you write about um growing up with kind of a hidden or invisible disability um at least to most people or you know you could kind of hide it um or I could believe that or, yeah that was true. <laughs> I, f- I find myself there were things that you said where I was like oh I relate to this so deeply and mm. I didn't even um it almost made me have like a little realization like, oh, for me, it was like mental health. It was like my anxiety was something that people couldn't see. Or again, kind of people could, people knew I was a worrier, but um, maybe not the extent of it. And um, some, you wrote in an essay, it was a a piece for The Guardian. um, Mm -hmm. And you talked about the first time that you really made a close friend with someone who also um, your friend Hope, she also has yes. um, cerebral palsy. Is that right? She does. And you said, Hope and I spent several hours in a coffee shop that late afternoon commiserating about what it felt like for each of us to be the one kid on the block who couldn't run, climb fences, or ride a bike without training wheels. I learned I wasn't the only one who coped by making excuses, hiding behind books, and living too much in my head. This was the first time either of us had ever spoken about these experiences. It was also the first time that I could remember when I wasn't expending effort and energy to pretend my cerebral palsy didn't exist. Um, And I read Mm -hmm. that paragraph and I was like, oh my gosh, just reading your words about that, it was like, oh yeah, there were so many things. I, I was just a very, very, very anxious kid with a lot of separation anxiety. And so I was always making excuses, um, to not do things that scared me uh, or worried me, which was most things and hiding (laughs) behind books and living in my head. And so there really is that experience of like the, the universal in the particular, what was it like for you? You, you met hope when you were in graduate school. Is that 
right? Afterwards, I was 25 when we met. So I've been a late bloomer in a lot of things. (laughs) So yeah, I didn't have a friend with a body anything like mine until I was 25. So maybe it's a good time to talk a little bit about growing up, what it was like for you to kind of have what you've described as like a split self or a secret self, a hidden self. Um, And maybe you could read Hemoplegia 1. Oh, sure. Hemoplegia 1. I was maybe five when I first tried to make sense of it. My split self, the side that recognizes everything it touches, the side that feels muted, slept on. Why do I feel less on the right? I wondered aloud, and with the swiftness of someone who's been waiting to be asked, my mom said, your heart's on the left, like everyone's. We were headed somewhere in our blue barracuda. My father focused on the road, my mother gazing out the passenger window as she defined the world. I sat in back, the middle spot, feet on the hump. Left hand feeling for the ordinary drumbeat I shared with every other living soul. Right, not feeling much of anything at all. Thank you. That was beautiful. Oh, thank you. It's interesting. I, I, I'm not sure I ever thought about it in this way, but um, I think I grew up with a, a literal split self, maybe, and a metaphorical one. Mm. You know, I have the way that my um, disability presents is that it, it literally exists only on the right half of my body. Um, so I have full sensation on the left and full uh, dexterity and ability on the left. And, and, you know, it's weaker and tighter and more muted on the right. And also... You know, there was the, the the very active and alive imaginary life that I lived. And then, you know, the more uh, limited and, and, and muted um, physical life. Mm. Well, what was your experience like of that as, as a kid? Kind of, it sounded like your parents dismissed it or tried to kind of pretend it didn't exist keep it kind of hidden they they minimalized it um you know I mean they they did what you know the doctors recommended they took me to um united cerebral palsy once a month to have physical therapy they uh you know tried to remind me to do my exercises um for there was a period of time where I wore a night brace and they you know for the most part made sure I, I followed through and did that. But, but it wasn't, it wasn't something we talked about. Um, it's not that it, it, it wasn't that we never talked about it, but we never talked about it openly. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I was aware that I had something that, you know, um, was why I had to do these exercises and wear this brace, but my body just felt like my body to me. You know, so I wasn't aware until somebody said something that um, that they could see they could see a difference in the mm-hmm. way that I moved, and I never and my parents never sat me down and had a conversation where they acknowledged that like you know somebody could look at you and notice this and maybe they'll say something and 
what would be a good way to respond that mm. I had to figure that part out on my own. Yeah. And it was, it was like an, a little, a friend of yours when you were like six, right. Who said, um, something about the way that you walked. <laughs> she said, um, I think we were sitting around like, just, you know, nobody else was around to play with and we weren't each other's favorite person to play with. To begin <laughs> with. And she said, Oh, well, I know, let's just walk around like people who limp. And and so she slid off the fence we were sitting on and, and started limping around in a circle and I started trying to imitate her. And she turned to me and she said, well, we'll just walk like you always do, mm-hmm. you limp. Um, and so that was kind of news to me. But I had this, um, I had this kind of, deliberate amnesia I guess because you know she'd say that to me and I you know it would sting and I would think about it for a moment and then I would completely forget Mm. um and then another time I remember uh, a teacher in school saying a gym teacher and people were running running around the schoolyard and he said uh go sit down you don't really run and until he said that I thought that I was running Mm. it felt you know it felt like what I thought running felt like Mm -hmm. you know so there were moments like that. And then again, it would just sort of leave my mind. And, mm. you know, obviously I stored it somewhere because I still remember it. But yeah, that's so um, interesting because it kind of links back to what you were saying about using writing as a way of discovering how you feel about something. Because if part of you is was for a long time stowing away a lot of things and just kind of not dealing, you know, not really necessarily processing it or maybe and not not necessarily having people to process it with when you're just a kid um right right and not knowing how to make that happen or even that that it was something that would be good yeah that makes a lot of sense that writing would become a way to to even years later kind of work through some of that yeah yeah, it's interesting. Um, I I've been working a lot in nonfiction lately, in essays and and memoir, and and the hardest thing about it is that I have a terrible memory. <laughs> <laughs> I do too. <laughs> um, so I have to do a certain amount of imagining myself back into the past, mm. you know. But um, but one of the realizations that I came to in the process of trying to write is that the reason I don't have a good memory is because I dissociated so much. Yeah. You know, I drifted off into my imagination and and so I can't have a good memory for something I wasn't fully present yeah. for. Yeah, I remember in like an intro to psych course in college, I remember my professor saying, in order to store something in your long-term memory, you have to be really focused on it. And I remember having a moment of going, oh, that's why I have a really bad memory because I've been so anxious <laughs> so mm. many times. And when you're anxious, you are not focusing on what's actually happening in front of you, you know? So I was like, I think that has affected my memory a little bit. <laughs> yeah. And it's sad because I don't think there, there's no way to get that back. Yeah. Because it's, it's, it's not even as though... You, it's there and you forgot it. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, you were gone. Yeah. 
you know, you were in your worries and I was in my, um, my pretend world that, that was more comfortable than my own skin. Yeah. And that's where books really did come in too, right? Absolutely. They're a safe place to escape to no matter what is going on outside. I, I, in episode three, I think of the podcast or the episode with Tabrija mm-hmm. Jones, she, um, is a librarian now and we were just talking about you know like what books we would carry around with us to feel safe <laughs> oh that's so interesting because it actually crossed my mind earlier in this conversation when you were talking about um the revealing of the self when you write and I thought oh well one of the things the first writer I remember latching on to was Judy Bloom. yeah and reading her characters were always in first person and I just remember thinking it sounds like the inside of my own head mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I always loved books that were in some way a mirror yeah which is interesting because that's that's almost the opposite of using them to escape but it was more I guess I used them more for reassurance in a certain way mm-hmm. yeah I think Similarly, it's interesting how people often use like fantasy books um, Mm -hmm. when they're going through something difficult. But a lot of that, the fantasy books are actually dealing so explicitly with like forces of good and evil and darkness and light. And I think for a lot of people, even though they are escaping into some fantastical elements or characters, there's also like a, a desire to just think explicitly about you know, the, the, these forces of dark and light and, um, right. I don't so know, you're actually a... working on something yeah. in a certain way, but you're doing it indirectly. Yeah. I think that was how I felt about Harry Potter as a kid, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and it's interesting because JK Rowling has said, you know, the, the Dementor characters and the, I, did you read Harry Potter or did your son read Harry Potter? I read, I actually read, the, I read first book twice once I'm also a librarian though I'm not practicing at the moment so so once I read it as a librarian and then when my son was old enough we read it together mm-hmm. um so I'm so the first one I did read mm. yeah there's care there's these dementors later on in the books who like suck people's souls and mm. and she said that was really her working through like depression you know what it felt like wow. to be depressed and she kind of created these these um creatures that actually suck people's souls out and she was like yeah that's what it felt like to be depressed so yeah there's something there it's interesting something I also really connect to in your writing is the way that you describe kind of like coming of age and being a young woman I love how in geode you do kind of you know we get a we get these snapshots of your childhood your teenage years you know college your first marriage, you know, motherhood. And um, then when you, your relationship with um, your current husband, Dan. Um, so it really feels like we get to, to see so much of your life. It is kind of a memoir in poems. I, you know, I, I wrote that book, not as a book. I wrote it, I wrote it poem by poem. So, you know, so not in, not in chronological order in terms of my thinking, but when I was putting it together, I, I really saw that if I if I trusted the tr- the chronology, I actually had a story there. Mm. And there is 
always this common theme um, running throughout. And I think something that a lot of women in particular uh, can see themselves in is the way that you describe kind of the validation that you would seek from relationships Mm. with boys or men and feeling like you were lucky, you know, if someone liked you and that you could feel okay if, if a guy, you know, gave you attention. And I mean, that was also something that I just totally was like, yeah, me too. You know, like, um, I, I think you described somewhere having a friend say something about your first husband that kind of indicated that she was surprised that he would be with you. Is that, am I remembering that correctly or something like, cause he was this like handsome athletic guy. Yeah. 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 Boy, it's, that's, that's painful stuff for me to look at (laughs) because I, I, I know, I know how that story ends and I so wish I could go back in time and tell my younger self to not, to not give so much authority to men, so much of my self-worth mm-hmm. to men, um, to be more patient and to really just enjoy all, all the, ah, the freedom I had before I was in a relationship and the, the good friendships that I had. And there was that, you know, that message, I guess, that we all get that somehow being picked um, makes us gives us our value yeah and part of part of me knew better like (laughs) intellectually (laughs) well that's always the thing right it's like yeah I I remember I went through a period I was in a relationship all throughout college and then broke up and for that like year out of first year out of college like I was really trying to feel okay um Mm by feeling yeah like I was picked or um that I could just feel okay through these different guys and intellectually I completely knew that that was not true and not (laughs) healthy and it's so incredibly painful to think back on but it was I remember my aunt saying to me like it's one thing to know something and it's another thing to know it in your bones and you know it in your right. bones now after something particularly right. painful, you know. And I can think back to myself, say in my uh, late teens, early 20s and being able to say to another friend <laughs> all, all that, all that yeah. wisdom, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but certainly not to apply it to myself. Yeah, it's a whole other thing, right? Like even sometimes... I can notice myself in the present. I can notice myself doing it, you know, about mm. something where with someone else, it's so crystal clear. It's, it's so, it's like that with writing, right? Like, have you ever, I'm, I'm sure you've been with other writers where you've critiqued each other's uh-huh. work <laughs> and it's so clear, you know, you don't need that line. <laughs> yeah. And then when it's your um, line, you're like, that's my baby. <laughs> right. Right. Or, or someone points it out and you're like, oh, <laughs> it's so obvious now, but. Yeah, it's, I guess, when you're so close to something, or you're literally inside it, um, it's really hard to have that, that wisdom. 
Dan, Dan, my husband says something that I think is really wise, which is, he says, um, remember to read yourself sympathetically. Mm. And, and the idea is actually to be able to imagine you are a character in a novel and you know you've made the same mistakes and and yet you're reading the book and you can really feel for that person yeah to kind of allow yourself to step out of yourself for a moment to have that empathy yeah it's so funny my uh in the most recent episode with my uncle paul um he was saying when he's really deep in self-judgment he'll sometimes think about his children and like if his kid did the same thing how Mm. would he respond or or he tries to picture himself saying the same thing to his child and he's like it's so painful and I and I realize like I would never say these things to them Um, the the things that he says to himself right Mm -hmm. yeah I have a very mean person who lives inside me and wakes me up at two in the morning to tell me all the terrible things I do yeah (laughs) No, I I do too. And I know like it's self-forgiveness has been really hard for me. Um, yeah. And I'm curious if that's something, yeah, is, is forgiveness something and forgiving yourself something that has been? Does not come naturally. Yeah. Does not come naturally. I, I, I have, um, I have very strange sleeping patterns where I, um, have a really hard time going to, you know, settling down and going to sleep at night. And then um, when I wake up in the morning for the longest time, literally the first thing I would do is start to berate myself. Like that's how I would start the day. Um, And it also, again, it took, it took writing about my family um, and, and my sister who, um, who died young and um, to realize, well, some of this is survivor guilt, you know, mm-hmm. that I get to wake up in the mor- morning. So I'm kind of beating myself up for that. Yeah. And, you know, articulating that on the page allowed me to name it. And it, it has gotten better since then. Yeah, I've read some of your essays about your sister that were are just so heartbreaking and your openness about how it took you a long time to really kind of to really grieve it sounds like um oh decades yeah Yeah. and I I could also I really understood that too because you said somewhere in um one of the essays that you know you you kind of you regretted um just how you had I guess your attitude the last time um you saw her and and that like fully grieving her meant having to acknowledge regret right yes and yeah i i think that's something that for you it, it's so huge and so tragic but that's something that i think can crop up in our lives every day like i think sometimes i you know with the people i love the most if i feel like i haven't been treating them well the mm-hmm. gap between us just gets wider and wider because I don't want to face the fact that I actually feel bad about, you know, maybe not giving as much attention as I should, not focusing or listening as closely as I should, or being too, being annoyed or brusque or something. And then because I can't 
acknowledge that, forgive myself, apologize and move on, it, the, the gap just like widens and widens and right. widens and you lose connection. Okay. Yeah. You, you don't make that phone call or whatever mm-hmm. it takes to reach out, right? Because, because of what you have to face when you do or what you're afraid you'll have to face. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you have learned a little bit more um, self-compassion or self-forgiveness over time? What do you think has kind of helped lead you to that? If you have, um, I had a very good uh, therapist at one point who taught me something that should be so uh, obvious, but it was an incredible revelation for me. I was talking about how what a guilty person I am, how I walk mm-hmm. around feeling guilty because I have so many blessings in my life. Um, you know, um, just things to be that I'm just, I'm just, I feel like I'm a very lucky person in a lot of ways. And, um, and I was feeling bad about it, feeling bad about all the good things that have come my way. And, um, and at some point I, I said, you know, when she was asking me, well, why does that always make you feel guilty? And I said, well, what else do you feel? And she said, how about gratitude? <laughs> <laughs> and it yeah. was such a simple thing, but I was, it, it literally was not in my wheelhouse to, to just think, oh, <laughs> yeah. how, how wonderful that I get to have these things or that I, I have a good life. Um, and, and it really shifted something. And um, for a while, I kept a, I'm not a journal keeper generally, but I did keep a gratitude journal for a while mm. where I um, would write every night before bed, I would write five things that I was grateful for. And I would go into some a certain amount of detail. And I made a rule for myself that it couldn't be things that I was grateful, like bad things that I was grateful didn't happen. <laughs> it, had, it had to be something positive that did happen. And um and and what I discovered doing that is it was it literally was retraining my brain so that I was looking for the things to be grateful for throughout yeah. the day, and that made a huge difference. Yeah. Yeah, I had a therapist say to me, "Anxiety is what you feel when you don't know how to feel," mm. and it kind of taught me to notice when I was feeling really anxious, like. It's interesting, too, because when I read what you've written about, what you write about Dan and how kind he is, and at, like it reminds me a lot also of, of my boyfriend, Martin, because he's just such a kind, generous person, and I mm. literally don't know how to receive it sometimes. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I'll get, I'll get anxious about something bad happening rather than just being so grateful to have him in my life, you know, and I have to train myself to like take a deep breath and just say thank you to him or, you know, I'm sorry for being irritated or, you know, um, and just like learning how to receive. um, That's hard. Yeah. I, when people do really nice things for me, favors, sometimes I just freeze. Mm Mm-hmm. I feel like however I express my gratitude won't be enough or it won't seem genuine or um, I, I, I had been working on a book about my sister for a number of years and I um, was doing a lot of research and I 
um, this very important uh, lawyer who is actually now a judge got back to me with some information I really needed. And I actually literally, he was leaving a message on my answering machine and I froze. I couldn't pick up the phone. Mm I and it was just I that I was so I was so grateful I was bowled over by it and and I, and I literally froze. Yeah, I I totally understand that. I I saw Elizabeth Gilbert gave a talk mm. um, in Oh my god, I love her. Yeah, I went to see her at Count Basie Theater in Red Bank. I think it was last March. She said, "You know, I used to think that the the meaning of life was to learn how to love. And she said, now I think it's actually to learn how to receive love. Mm. And that really resonated with me. And she, she's written about having been a very fearful child, mm-hmm. which is amazing to me because she strikes me as such a brave. Fearless, yeah. Yeah. And she's also written a lot about seeking validation from men in her Right, you know, twenties right. especially, and I remember I, I saw her in an interview. I think it was like a Super Soul Oprah interview. She mm. and Oprah was asking her like what advice she would give to her younger self, and she said something about like stop focusing so much on guys. Like she was like, I could have learned Mandarin in the time that I <laughs> <laughs> devoted to guys. <laughs> so There's a yeah. wonderful song about that. Oh, really? Yeah, it's about a specific relationship. Um, and I'm not going to remember the details well enough, but but it's it, the song is literally a, a litany of all the things she could have accomplished <laughs> in the in the times that in in, in what she gave this relationship. Mm. And it, one of them was I could have carved out the Grand Canyon with a spoon. <laughs> <laughs> Who was that? Do you remember? Um, no, but I can look it up. Yeah, if you remember, I'll, I'll, I'll put the link on the show notes page later. <laughs> okay. I really just, I really appreciate how you've, re- I feel like you capture it really well, the feeling of being a young woman and, and just wanting to feel okay. And I guess just because of the messaging that we get from like, the time we're in the womb (laughs) we just learn to seek that from relationships and oftentimes from relationships with men yeah 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 and and we let ourselves be in relationships that aren't aren't good for us because of that belief that it's you know being with somebody is somehow more validating than being on your own yeah i think um in some ways um having the disability has been a it's given me a good lens to look at this stuff through mm. when when i first started writing about disability i was afraid well nobody's going to relate to this because it's so specific to to me and my quirky body but i, I actually think now that um what a physical disability does this in particular for a woman is it, 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 it puts a magnifying glass on, on how we all feel flawed yep. and not good enough. Yeah. 
yeah, so many of us walk around feeling like I can't pinpoint why as an 18 year old, I felt like I was somehow fundamentally not okay (laughs) as Mm. I was. Um, I have something I can blame. (laughs) Yeah. And, but, and also, I mean, it's so, it's like you talk about when you met Dan, who is blind, you know, you realized, oh, well, I had, I at least have been able to kind of, you know, people don't always necessarily know right off the bat that I have a disability. Um, And for him, people know immediately and can make all sorts of judgments. And so similarly, it's like, I have, I have the privilege of, of not having a, a physical marker of being othered, but, but still there's something about being human where some of us or a lot of us just feel that deep down inside. Mm-hmm. I, I've come to, to feel like, I, I mean, now I imagine everybody has that something, but I know, you know, say in high school, there certainly seemed to be a group of kids who didn't. Yeah. They seemed, at least on the surface, to have yeah. it so together and be so confident. But they never felt entirely real to me. Mm. I felt I felt like somehow um, me and, and, and my friends who would be uh, you know, just a little bit offbeat for whatever reason, just seemed more, more, like, more human. Yeah. Uh, I was just thinking about, there's a writer named Anne Finger, who uh, also has a disability. She's uh, post-polio. And she, she read, she wrote the first memoir I ever read um, by somebody with a, with a physical disability. And it was no surprise. It was a revelation for me. Um, and one of the things that I remember her describing is this idea that pe- to her, people who didn't have a disability seemed like they were skating on the surface mm. of life. And it makes you kind of think about what it means to be human, right? <laughs> like if it, right. that it, it means not being completely whole or not, you know, not having it completely figured out or together or perfect because it's true that people who seem for whatever reason who seem perfect seem less human (laughs) from the outside (laughs) right but probably without exception you get to know any one of those people and and uh and they're walking around thinking there's a pretty big hole in them somewhere yeah definitely i think sometimes the people who look the most perfect from the outside are in really deep pain. You just don't know it. Right. They're, they're even all the more invested in, in appearing. Yeah. So together. Yeah. And I'm curious as a mother, um, how this has, I I know that you wrote a memoir about mothering with a disability, Mm. right? Yeah. I know that mothers, face so much pressure to somehow be perfect (laughs) and to do everything yeah I think that's really true um today and and really true when I was raising my son who's 22 now um I don't think it was as true when I was growing up (laughs) I think um I I think it got a lot harder somehow the expectations 
of being the perfect mother um, got a lot uh, louder. Mm. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I, I had so much anxiety when I was pregnant about doing everything perfectly. Um, and of course, you know, nobody's going to do it perfectly, but I, it's, it's, it was a funny thing because I had a lot of anxiety and I also had a lot of denial. So I was anxious about, you know, um, eating the exact right, right things. And, you know, I was, I would worry about, you know, computer exposure and any kind of exposure to, you know, anything walking by someone smoking a cigarette. I mean, obsessively wanting to just, you know, um, keep this baby safe. But I, what I didn't think about was that, um, I, I had physical limitations that I was really going to have to, uh, find ways to work around and ask for help because taking care of an infant is a very, very physical job. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I, I, one of the scenes in that memoir is sitting on a bus while I was still pregnant and watching a woman get on or off the bus carrying her baby in one hand and a stroller in the other and noticing her, but not thinking twice about the fact that there was no way that I could perform that feat. Yeah. Um, you know, and I lived in an urban place and I don't have a car, I don't drive. So I was going to have to figure out how to, how to, how to get around the world with a baby in tow. Um, when, you know, I can't go up and downstairs without holding on Mm. things like that. Could you read, um, the poem, no, from Geo on 35? Yes. That's um, what I was talking about before that when I was writing the essay where I kept getting up up and down off the mm. uh, chair, that was the first time I ever wrote about this mm. experience. Okay, no. The nurses shaped us into positions, cradle hold, football hold. My hands couldn't take you to the right place. Cerebral palsy, I mumbled, apology, explanation as though those experts of the body didn't already know. Finally, they propped cushions around us. Your lips touched my breast, but instead of suckling, you dozed. This had the nurses worried. I worried how I'd feed you alone. That night, your wail woke me. I scooped you up, found the nurse's bell. When a new one came, I shyly explained the pillows, the palsy. No, she said, and I stared no that baby needs sleep not milk I tried again he's hungry shaking her head she left our room I attempted the football hold the cradle tried setting up pillows and sitting between them they fell keeping you in my arms I paced I sang we cried in unison both of us so helpless so desperately new. Mm. So interesting too, because again, like I think so many new mothers feel, you know, my sister has, my older sister has a few little ones now and I have Mm -hmm. friends who are starting to have babies and I know so many new mothers feel 
that overwhelm and maybe struggle with breastfeeding in different ways. And that's even people who, you know, can can scoop the baby up with and and hold the stroller in the other hand too, you know. So like that it just made my heart ache like how amplified and how lonely that must have felt for you and scary. Um it it was very lonely and very scary. Um I had a, a friend who was a mother of two. Kids were probably about four and six when Ethan was born. And um, this was our first few days at home, and he was crying, crying, and, and I, I didn't want to leave him to cry. I was trying to be the perfect attachment parent, mm-hmm. meaning, you know, to always just attend to his need as soon as he expressed it. And so I, I couldn't feed myself because I was so busy uh, you know, holding him and make, and taking care of him. And my friend called to see how things were going. And I just burst into tears. And I said, I told her what was going on. And she said, Oh, don't worry. Welcome to motherhood. You'll soon, you know, learn to do things with one hand. Mm. And she meant well, but I just, I felt so lonely in that moment because she didn't realize that I really only had one capable hand. Yeah. And, and I needed that hand to make sure I was holding him well. Yeah. Um, what did give you, like, solace and strength <laughs> um, during those baby years, especially? Where did you find, where did you find that? That's a good question. Um, I'd say, that, you know, the first few months, there was nothing. <laughs> it was just, yeah. it was just so hard. I mean, I... I was mesmerized by him. I thought he was incredible. And, and so, um, there was, there was joy in that, but, um, but I also, I, I, I read an article years after the fact and discovered that what I had at the time was postpartum anxiety, Mm. um, which is different from postpartum depression, which is what you hear about, um, but, you know, your hormones are doing all kinds of crazy things. And mine was just making me so anxious and afraid, um, on you know, mostly on his behalf, that I was going to somehow damage him. Mm. Um, and I guess something that helped was, real, you know, a moment where I saw him I, I, I recognized for the first time that that uh, that he wanted me specifically. Mm. Um, I had, we were visiting relatives of my, my husband at the time and, um, and he was being passed around, you know, person to person at this, I think it was a Thanksgiving dinner. And at the end of the night he was crying and my husband's aunt was trying to console him and it wasn't working. And she finally said, okay, here, I know what you want. And she handed him to me and he immediately stopped crying. Mm-hmm. And it was the first sign I had that he didn't think I was a complete failure. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, I think that, you know, that was the first moment. But then after that, there were moments when I realized like that, he, you know, that I was, I could console him. And I, I was the source of, of, not just sustenance, but also comfort to him. Mm-hmm. This may seem counterintuitive, but finally getting angry 
at the world kind of helped me too. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I had a situation where um, we got stranded on a train. Um, I, I was going to visit someone on a commuter train and I couldn't, you know, I needed help getting up and down off the, on the train and off the train. And, you know, I had no problem. Somebody was very helpful getting me on the train coming and my friend met me and she helped put me on the train going back and going home. I told the conductor I needed him to, to make sure that we got off safely at our stop. And he forgot about us. The train emptied out. And I was waiting and waiting, thinking the conductor was going to come and help me. Because at that point, he was in a, Ethan was in a stroller. And I couldn't get it down off the train. So we were, we were stuck in the train station. And I didn't know, you know, whether it was going to, the train was going to sit there. It was the last stop or if it was going to go to the train yard. So I couldn't get off the train without him. Um, so I, you know, had to yell out the window. Out the, out the open door until somebody came and it probably wasn't more than a few minutes but it felt like a terrifying eternity mm. and I was so mad um, and you know that's a moment where I wasn't turning it in on myself mm. you know what I mean so I wasn't looking at myself as the failure I was mad at the conductor I was mad at the inaccessibility um, and, and that it gave me some strength. Mm. Does that make sense? It does. It's interesting too that I felt like in in reading your the poems and the essays, it, it feels like you describe moving to this greater sense of of self acceptance and really you're you know coming to a, a greater sense of wholeness over time, mm-hmm. and and it seemed like. It feels like a lot of that came from engaging with the world in a way where you were able to really connect with a lot of love. Um, so kind of the, the flip side of like the anger at, you know, the the outside obstacles. There was also like, you know, even with your son, you describe how he just loved you, you know, and, and didn't mind, yeah. you know, that you walked differently or, you know. Um, right and 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 that my 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 touch was home to him mm-hmm. my body was home to him mm-hmm. um and that i think you know once we got past infancy and he started being mobile himself it got a lot easier for me physically mm-hmm. and then i could look back and say whoa that was really hard but we did it. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like motherhood um, in that way was part of, of coming into greater kind of acceptance of, of your body? Yes, because I, I came to understand my body and disability in a very different way, in a very, in a much more realistic way. Mm-hmm. Because just like we were talking about before, how when, as young women, we were so concerned about, um, you know, how, how men in particular saw us and how we got our validation based on that. And, and because that was the way that I had lived in my body, what I saw cerebral palsy as was a cosmetic flaw. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, some women might be overweight or have bad skin or whatever. My flaw was that I walked funny. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but really what disability is, is a set of specific limitations. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and when once it became a kind of a practical concern instead mm-hmm. of a... A value judgment. Um, <laughs> a value judgment, exactly. Um, then I... I saw it differently. It was just, you know, and I, and I could recognize certain things like the fact that as someone with a physical disability, with a physical disability, I had always been a problem solver Mm. just by nature. You know, I couldn't do things a straightforward way. So I always came at it from a different angle. And, um, so I just, you know, I had this person to care for, I couldn't waste my time worrying about what other people were thinking. I had to solve problems. I had to ask for help, um, which also allowed me to see the goodness in the world when people Mm -hmm. were really helpful. Um, But that takes courage and and practice. Yeah. Um, But ultimately, I think it was a, um, a road to getting more comfortable in my skin. Yeah. And then there's this beautiful, perfect human being that I created. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So that gave me some confidence. Yeah. So look what I made. I may not be able to play guitar with my fingers, but I made his fingers and they play beautifully. <laughs> and he's this extension of you out there, right? Yeah. More recently in my life, when I started to think more about how, well, how do I feel versus how do I look, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I, I connected to something that you've written about kind of how, when you are judging yourself based on those kind of standards of beauty, you're participating in the whole system and and you're judging other people that way Mm -hmm. too. And when you can kind of change the way you see yourself, like you start to see the beauty in other people too, like your whole concept of beauty I think starts to change if bit by bit when you practice, you know, not just like zeroing in on every perceived flaw of yourself. <laughs> right. Right. And actually that I do I love how you've written about, you know, that kind of the aspect of of beauty and and physical attractiveness and your relationship to that and um I love what you've written about your relationship with Dan, because like we mentioned, I mentioned earlier, um, Dan is blind. And so I was wondering if you would read, um, when the man you love is a blind man. Oh, sure. I love that poem and I feel like it just says so much. Do you know what page? Oh yes. It's on 62. Thank you. When the man you love is a blind man, you can stop shaving your legs when the temperature drops, and he'll say he likes a change in texture with the seasons. You can leave that bit of silver in your bangs. Your fashion advice will be gospel. When he tells you you're beautiful, you'll know he's talking about something in you that's timeless, something about you that's true. If teasing, he says that smearing color on your face is what a clown does. Explain how a touch of blush can change the feel of entering a room and he'll listen. 
who'll always listen. Like the wide world is a raft with only two people on it, and he finds you the more interesting of the two. Imagine going with him to the Rockies. He hears you sigh and asks what the mountains look like. All you have are words, awesome, grandeur. But when you describe that feeling of seeing your one life for the flicker it is, he knows. Oh, he says, oh, it's like hearing music in a cathedral. Thank you. I love that poem. It's so oh, my pleasure. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, I'm curious what that relationship has, how it has affected the way that you think about beauty or, or even, and even your own body and your, your own physical appearance. Yeah, it's, it's been so interesting because obviously, um, he's not, he doesn't concern himself with appearances the way many men do, um, because he doesn't, he, he can't see faces. He can't, he, he can't judge comparatively, which is what we all do. Right. So there, so that in and of itself is just kind of refreshing and interesting to, to witness. Um, but it also, you know, the other, another thing about him is, is his comfort in his own disability, his, his, his comfort in moving around the world the way he needs to move around the world and asking for help when he needs it. And, um, you know, we're always, or at least I'm always learning and relearning the same lessons. So years ago when I became friends with Hope, my first friend with a disability, I learned to like myself in a new way because I could see that she liked herself, but also that I liked her and that her disability in no way diminished what there was to like and love. Um, and the same was true getting to know Dan. I kind of got that lesson again, like, well, I just admire him and, 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 and love who he is. Um, and, and his disability in no way diminishes that. So again, maybe that's also a way that I can see myself. It's interesting how we tend to see ourselves as somehow an exception. Like we fear that we're somehow so much worse than everyone else. We hope that somehow secretly we're way better. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Or at least just as good as. Yeah. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But there's that ego part, I think, that can come into play, you know, where it's like, I don't know, like those that those two signs of sides of the coin of like self-loathing and self, I don't know, aggrandizing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Instead of just seeing like our common humanity. (laughs) Like, yeah, well, if I think these people are just great, like the way that they are, then logically, (laughs) many people probably feel the same way about (laughs) me, right? (laughs) Right. Somehow logic, you know, doesn't often, isn't the first place we go. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. Yeah. But it is helpful to, to just take a step back and think about how you actually think about 
the people that you really like and love. Mm-hmm. And what you accept mm-hmm. of their their flaws. Right. Yeah. Or or maybe they don't even they don't even register as flaws to you, but they do if you're looking at yourself. Right. Yeah. It, it sort of brought me back to the idea of um reading yourself sympathetically. Mm-hmm. I, you know, um and and that idea that when we're when we're judging it's always a comparison of some kind. Yeah. And I think when we turn off that um am I as good as or am I better than um when we can turn that off we can be a lot um kinder to ourselves and we can put our energy into better places. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. It's kind of like um what you're describing is like that that freedom of actually just being able to appreciate um the goodness and things and then you can be so much more generous <laughs> and generative. Right. Right. And generative exactly. You can you can go about doing what it is you you do that that feels productive and generative and um if I, I find that if I'm if I if I'm busy and happy and 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 doing you know for me it's writing but doing the thing that I feel like I'm here to do <laughs> then I don't get caught up in the traps as much because I'm just I'm 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 living and not not uh stopping to to judge yeah or second guess that's a really important point I find when my anxiety is at its worst um I'm probably not doing things that I love to do like I've I've probably stopped mm-hmm. I've lost track of actually just doing the things in life that I love to do so one one question that I like to ask a lot of guests what's something that you are learning about or growing into right now hmm I finally am doing something that I have wanted to do my whole life which is is writing full-time mm. for a long time I, I I worked as a librarian and of course I was um, mothering as well as so you know that's two full-time jobs on top of yeah. being a writer. And I, so the last few years I've been able to um, just be at home working and, and you know, put, put the time in. And, uh, and it's, it's been a real learning experience because um, <laughs> nothing to get in my way but me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um and I, you know, so I think I've become a more internal person, a bit more of a loner. And some of that is, you know, that's a luxury too, in that I'm in a good relationship that gets me out of myself. So it's, it's safe to go retreat knowing mm-hmm. that some, there's someone will pull me in, pull, pull me back out into the world at some point mm-hmm. uh, in the week. But, um, <laughs> but I think I'm learning to really, um, love and value and protect um, solitude and creative time. Mm. 
Um, and as I get older, I'm just more mindful about not squandering it because time is really the most precious thing we have. Yeah. Have you ever struggled with solitude? I know there are people who crave it. Um, and then I feel like I'm someone who like craves it. And then sometimes I get it and I freak out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting. I think that naturally I'm very much an introvert. So I do, I love people and I love conversations, but not, you know, not a lot at once. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I know that when I was younger and more in that searching place of validation, it went hand in hand with that. I would, I would, I would get nervous if I was alone, and I would quickly reach for the phone, or I would quickly make a plan. Um, yeah, just just how you describe it, kind of run from the very thing I I felt that I wanted. Mm. That that I and that on some level I knew would would nourish me. What does it feel like now when you're in solitude? Most of the time, it's I'm, I'm just, I just feel really um, content and peaceful. And I come upstairs to the room where I write, where I'm surrounded by bookshelves, and I just feel like I can breathe a little deeper, and I can slow down and uh, and make and. You know, the discover make some discoveries, make some internal discoveries. Mm. There's always a cup of tea by my side, um, and I know things are going well if the tea is growing cold. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and I usually I, I read, and often it's just rereading something that I already know that I love, yeah, or um, that I find inspiring. Uh, you know, a writer's voice that. I, I want to have in my head. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, poetry is great for that too. Just a way of sort of uh, it, it. It's it does two things for me at once: a kind of settling in, but and also a kind of you know a way. It, it's a different way of being with somebody else. Mm-hmm. You know, hearing their voice and their thoughts and their. Uh, you know taking in their creation yeah but that's why i usually start writing by reading well thank you so much my pleasure i love diving into your work and i hope i hope everyone will go go to your oh your website where what is your website address it's um onagrits.wordpress.com okay yeah i hope everyone will go and you have many links to a lot of your work and I know like it it will give people the same feeling that that I got of just like oh yeah me too (laughs) (laughs) oh thank you Victoria that really means a lot of the Perennials podcast. I'm Victoria Russell. If you like the episode, please consider subscribing on iTunes, leaving a review, and sharing it with a friend. 
The music you're hearing now is I Orbit a Moon by Paul Finn.